Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation and our Douglas and Sarah Allison Auditorium. We, of course, welcome those who join us on our Heritage.org website on all of these occasions. For our in-house guests, we would ask that courtesy to check that mobile devices have been silenced or turned off. And, of course, we will post today's program on the Heritage homepage for everyone's future reference. Leading our discussion and welcoming our special guest is Paul Winfrey, director of our Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies. He also serves Heritage as the Richard A. Astor Fellow. Please join me in welcoming him. Paul? Uh, thanks for joining us uh, this morning. We have just surfed a great wave of tax policy with the most significant reforms to occur over the last 30 years. And with any hope, another great wave is building on the horizon. Like all fights in D.C., this one is not settled, though. There's a meme building on the left from a well-known Oliver Wendell Holmes quote that taxes are what we pay for a civilized society. But a civilized society is not defined by a bloated bureaucracy or a welfare system that penalizes working people. No, as Adam Smith wrote over 250 years ago, a civilized society is defined by one that drives human betterment, and betterment is derived by otherwise ordinary people trucking, bartering, and exchanging. We would call this trade. Trade by free people in free places, absent of slavery, oppression, and other forms of extortion, no matter where they live, whether it be Kansas or California or Hong Kong or South Korea. And most of these people, at least in the U.S., interact with the government in two ways, through the post office and through the tax office. Tax reform for most people is very personal, it is uh, not some theoretical concept. It determines how, uh, how many people they can hire in a given year, how they can invest in themselves and in their businesses, and what they can otherwise do with the products of their own hard work. Having free access to those products and the ability to determine how they are allocated is at the heart of a definition of a free society. This morning, we're very fortunate to be able to hear from Ways and Means Chairman Mr. Kevin Brady. Mr. Brady needs no introduction. He has served the people in the 8th Congressional District in Texas and has done so for the last two decades. And uh, personally, I can say that we're very lucky to have Mr. Brady at Ways and Means for two reasons. One, because he knows tax policy so well. And two, and as we'll see this morning, he can communicate it like none other. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Chairman to the Paul, thanks very much. Uh, for the introduction. Um, thanks for all that you've done, both here um, and at the White House. This is your third stint here at Heritage, so you just keep getting yeah. pulled back in, so that's a good thing for all of us. Uh, I want to start by saying how grateful I am to Heritage, um, everyone at Heritage. Passing the first 
pro-growth modern tax reform in three decades is never easy. But throughout that time, Heritage Foundation and its conservative tax policy leaders were thought leaders as we put together the best way to modernize this tax plan and, and played a role with our other uh, tax reform leaders, thought leaders throughout this country as we shaped, developed, improved, uh, and worked on uh, a new pro-growth tax code. So thank you for uh, playing such a critical role. So I hate tax day. Uh, everyone in my family is in a bad mood for about a week, uh, including my wife, who's gathering all the materials for this. We spoke uh, the midnight on Monday night as we were preparing to file our taxes, and I reminded her that, like every American, uh, uh, this week was the last time we'll ever ever file our taxes under that old, broken tax code. Because going forward, Americans will have a fair and simpler and far more pro-family and pro-business tax code than in the past. So good, good, uh, goodbye and good riddance to that mess of a tax code that just took too much out of people, every family's pocketbook and every local business's pocketbook. President Trump, since he signed the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, where the early signs have been so encouraging. We're seeing, uh, as you know, hundreds of businesses that have announced higher paychecks, higher bonuses, uh, better savings plans, better benefits for their workers. You're seeing 90% of, of workers uh, who saw higher paychecks in February. And the other 10% don't have a tax liability. And I saw this firsthand. I was in a Home Depot a couple Sundays ago with my wife because apparently we're redoing the bathroom. And so, who knew? And so, um, as she was looking at samples, this uh, woman came up to me. She works part-time at Home Depot. Um, she's a small business, but her name is Pat. And she's a small business person. She refinishes and antiques furniture, but she works part-time at Home Depot to make ends meet. So she came up, introduced herself, and said, thank you. Thank you for the tax cuts. She said, I get $184 more each of my paycheck. She said, you have no idea how much that means to me and my family. She said, that's real money. And she said, and for those, and I have a message for those in Washington who don't think much of this. And I thought, uh-oh, here it comes. And she said, Live like me. Well, she actually said, live like me, sweetie pie. You know, if you knew what we had to do to make ends meet, you'd understand how important these tax cuts are. So we're helping middle-income families, small businesses uh, throughout the country uh, in major ways. It's undeniable that our new tax code is boosting the economy and hardworking families everywhere are benefiting. Wages are up. Unemployment is low. Jobs claims at the lowest level. Since 1973, even the Congressional Budget Office, that rarely gets economic policy right, to be honest, even they acknowledge more than a million new jobs, more than a trillion dollars in the higher wages, uh, hundreds of billions of dollars in new investment in America, and even they acknowledge that the federal government will not have less but more federal revenue over the next decade after tax reform uh, than before. Um, and again, Thanks to tax reform, families can hope, again, for a better future. Um, and I want to make this point. Um, at the end of the day, in tax code, there really is just one fundamental question. Who gets to decide? Who gets to decide when Americans work hard for your money? Who gets to decide what you do with it? Is it you or is it some nameless bureaucrat in Washington, D.C.? So when a family with young children is fighting feverishly 
to fund the future for their children. Who gets to decide how they spend their money? The single mom fighting every day uh, to make sure her daughter has a great opportunity of life. Uh, who gets to decide where her money goes? When a Main Street business owner, when mom and pop work together to start a business, work late in the, the weekends, in the evenings, probably risking every penny they own uh, to reach their dream, who gets that meager profit each day? Does it go to you who earned it, often exhausted at the end of a long day, or is it grabbed by a federal government who doesn't even know your name? except on April 15th each year. The importance of tax reform is that, and the reason this moment is so important, is that we choose you. Opponents of this of tax reform and these tax cuts, they don't really worry about tax cuts for the rich. They worry about tax cuts for you, the average taxpayer. Because if you spend their, that money, they can't. If you have the first claim over your earnings, they no longer do. And if your dreams come before their dreams in Washington, everything in Washington, D.C. changes, everything. So given a choice between the federal government and you, we chose you, hardworking taxpayers. That is a fundamental question that Americans will face later this year in November. I think while many on the other side preach doom and gloom, I think it turns out to have been their own gloom. Um, we're seeing the economic impact along Main Street. We're seeing uh, investment and jobs come back overseas. But I'm convinced the best is yet to come. Because this tax reform was really designed to leapfrog America to the lead pack as the best place on the planet for that next new job, investment, manufacturing plant, or research facility. And those decisions will take some time. I was in Houston the other day meeting with a company that, that you would recognize their name. Uh, they are going to receive 200 to $300 million a year because of tax reform. And so their board of directors was in town to decide how they're going to spend it, how they're going to invest it. And that, what they decided was what you and I would hope. Uh, they were going to build new facilities. Uh, they're going to invest in new technology to be competitive. And they were investing in their workforce. That was their announcement. But what they said privately was even better music to our ears. What they said was, those new facilities that we're announcing, uh, they won't be built in Canada. They won't be built in a new market in Europe. They'll be built here in the United States. This, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was about influencing those decisions of where those new investments will go in the world. And what I'm anticipating, over the long term, a giant sucking sound of jobs and investment and growth coming back to the United States that for too long was going overseas. We now have a tax code where our businesses can compete and win anywhere in the world, especially here at home. And we're seeing that with these new rates and the full and immediate expensing is having just an explosive effect on Main Street businesses back home. There's not a business I talk to that hasn't decided because they now can write off from their taxes that new investment in plants, equipment, technology, and software, that they're not unleashing that back home. And that's, that is perhaps a hidden one of the hidden benefits of tax reform, but it's driving uh, our economy uh, in a major way. But we've got some challenges ahead, and I think uh, one of them is that um, we have to make sure that we have laid out the benefits of this tax reform for families and businesses uh, throughout America. The left told every American they'd see a tax increase. 
that it would do nothing for economic growth. Um, but I will tell you this, uh, they, mis they misled the American people. And I see this back home. I've yet to see anyone in Texas who's come up to me and said, hey, I really wish Washington would take more from what I earn. I would like to go back to the bad old days where our jobs were moving overseas, where paychecks were stagnant, where Main Street businesses just were afraid to make decision and grow. No one is seeking us um, moving backward and uh, going back to the slow growth predictions that every economist had for America. So where do we go from here? I think it's critical that we not settle at any point for less than the best. Every day, businesses along Main Street wake up and they ask themselves some key questions. What do I do today to become more competitive? What do I do today to become more innovative? What do I do today to become better? So I want to change the culture in Washington. Tax Reform 2.0 is really about tax reform and improvement every year. Just like the continuous improvement our businesses undertake, the ones that succeed do, it's important for Congress every year be looking at ways, how do we make America and our businesses more competitive? How do we make them more innovative? How do we become more family-friendly in our tax code? How do we become better as a nation? And the signal here should be, we're not going to, we're not, we're never going to let America fall this far behind again. The old way of doing things, which is to do tax reform once every 30 years, and in between just adopt a bunch of special interest provisions, because people are scrambling to stay competitive, those days are over. This is really about quality improvement of our tax code and our business climate and our family climate every year in Congress. That includes um, um, permanence of our tax provisions. A number of these provisions were made long-term, but because of the Senate budget rules weren't made permanent, it's time to do them. Uh, we know that there are, uh, we think, even better ways to help Families uh, save earlier and more, whether it's for retirement or for health care uh, or for education in the long term. We think there is more that can be done to spur innovation in America. We all read um, earlier this year that America, uh, for the first time, uh, fell out of the top ten of the most innovative countries on the planet. We're now ranked number 11. So we ought to be asking ourselves, because the country that wins the innovation race, they win the future economically. So we ought to be asking what more, how can we be more pro-growth and more innovative in our tax code going forward? So I want Congress, the House and Senate working with this president, and I've had uh, good discussions with the president about 2.0 really being setting a new culture for Washington going forward. Um, and I'm, I'm hopeful that we can work together to continue to improve the tax code each uh, and every year. Uh, we can't rest on our laurels. I think in addition to continuing to improve the tax code, now that we're armed with one of the most tax, uh, competitive tax codes on the planet, we need more customers and we need more workers. Customers come from free trade agreements that allow us to, to give us the freedom to sell our goods and services anywhere in the world with as little government interference as possible. That's free trade, and we need a workforce. It's off the sidelines and back into the workforce in a bigger way because economists who look at our tax reform in the out years, they tend to pull their punches because they're not convinced 
we can develop the workforce America needs for the future. Shame on us if we don't take up that challenge and meet it. And I'm confident we can. So look, our economy is picking up speed. More Americans are finally seeing more opportunities in their lives. So let's keep up that momentum in a big way. And I invite all of you to be just as you were, bringing us the best ideas on historic tax reform. Uh, we'll expect you to bring you your best ideas on how we can continue to improve it each and every year. With that, Paul, thank you. You bet. Come and take any questions, or are we good? Um, I think we're good. I think we'll ask a few more before lunch. Um, thank you very much, Chairman. You betcha. Thank you for having me here today. Ask our panel to come up, and then I'll introduce everybody. Sorry. Really, <laughs> it's just not fair. And thanks, everybody, for coming this morning. I'll go ahead and introduce our panel and then open it up for some opening remarks, and then we'll move to Q&A at the end of the session. Uh, so to my immediate left is uh, Doug holtz -Egan. Doug is uh, president of the American Action Forum. Uh, he has served in a variety of important positions around town. In 2001 and 2002, he was chief economist for the President's Council of Economic Advisors. Uh, at CAA, he helped formulate policies addressing the two, 2000 and 2001 recession and aftermath of the terrorist attacks of uh, September 11th, uh, 2001. Uh, Doug was also the director of the Congressional Budget Office. Uh, at, while at CBO, he assisted Congress as they addressed numerous policies, um, including the 2003 uh, tax cuts, and, and I believe you also brought dynamic scoring capacities to CBO when, when you were there. Uh, Doug has went on to be the director of domestic and economic policy for John McCain's presidential campaign and was also a professor. <laughs> it was also a professor of economics at, uh, at, uh, at Syracuse. Um, to, <laughs> to, to his left is uh, Scott Hodge. It was probably Scott's fault. Um, uh, <laughs> I'll agree on that. Yeah, no question. Uh, <laughs> Scott is uh, president of the Tax Foundation uh, and is recognized as one of the leading uh, experts on tax policy in Washington, D.C., uh, Scott has also worked on a number of issues, including uh, federal budget. Uh, during his tenure at Tax Foundation, uh, he has become uh, Tax Foundation has become one of the most influential organizations on tax policy, uh, and really became, I believe, a household name uh, during uh, last year's tax reform debate and, and some of the analysis that they put out, um, both helpful to Congress and the administration in thinking through some of the reform options. Uh, Scott uh, was uh, began his career in policy in Chicago, Illinois. Um, and where he helped found the Heartland Institute. He also spent about 10 years, I believe, here at the Heritage Foundation um, as, a, as a budget and a tax expert. Uh, to Scott's left is David Burton. David's my colleague here at the Heritage Foundation. David uh, specializes on tax issues, securities law, entrepreneurship, financial privacy, and regulatory and administrative law. Uh, he is, I, I believe, our only lawyer uh, in the economic policy shop, uh, but we still we still keep him around. Oh, Gattuso as well, that's right. Uh, but we still keep him and, and James around. 
before that, James, or excuse me, David, um, was in uh, private uh, practice, so he has uh, skin in the game, uh, so to speak, and uh, knows uh, what it's like to run a small business in, in, in this climate and in the previous climate that we dealt with. Uh, please join me in welcoming our, uh, our, our, our panel. And Doug, you want to go ahead and sure off? So uh, first of all, my uh, congratulations to Heritage for having this event. I, I like the relentless, let's keep doing tax reform uh, attitude. Um, there's nothing better. Uh, and thanks for inviting me to talk. Um, I really have just sort of three main points to make about sort of looking forward in tax reform, one of which the chairman just emphasized, which is the best tax policy is tax policy that is permanent and thus sends the a distinct signal about incentives in the economy, and, and we've got a mixture out of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. The, we have good permanent uh, corporate provisions, and we have um, the individual stuff where we have a whole variety of sunsets and, and phases. And so cleaning that up, I think, is, is number one on the tax agenda. Um, number two in my mind would be uh, the, the politically difficult task of, of additional base broadening. Right? The basic recipe of tax reform is lower rates, broaden the base. Um, uh, we should have the rates low on the return to saving and investment. We should have a very broad base where the tax code is not dictating uh, all sorts of uh, private sector decisions. And um, we got some of that done, but I'd say that, that there's an incomplete there, and it'd be nice to see additional work done in that front. But, but the most important thing, I think, to emphasize is um, – what I view as one of the lessons of history. I, I'm now, I think, officially old instead of just feeling old. Um, and it, if you think back to the 86 Act, and, and as one of the people who sort of watched that carefully, it was really hard to get the 86 tax reform done. And you know, we had a, a president who had run promising to do tax reform, got reelected, and won 49 states, um, which is pretty good. And... Um, uh, the Treasury wrote the bill, sent it to the Hill, so they gave them tons of air cover on what was going to be in it. And it still took nearly two years, and it died two very distinct deaths along the way before they, they got it over the finish line. And so the lesson I got from that is it's really hard to do tax reform. The more striking thing is it was unwound so quickly. It, by, by 1990, there were already uh, serious dents in that reform, and, and very quickly in the 90s, it was gone. So... Harder than doing tax reform is keeping tax reform. And one of the reasons the, the uh, 86 Act unwound, not the only one, but, but an important one was we started running what were at the time believed to be very significant budget deficits, about $100 billion. It seems quaint in these, these days. But, um, uh, and it led to this need for, quote, revenue. And you open up the, the tax code to get more revenue, and pretty soon you lose the integrity of the tax reform. I look at the fiscal situation in the United States, and, and we have something we need to deal with. The left is going to want to do it with revenue. They're going to want to unwind everything that just happened. Um, they are dead set on raising the corporate rate back up to 35, maybe 40 if they can. Uh, they're all very bad ideas. And so phase two of tax reform has to include taking care of the other side of the ledger on the spending so that there is a, a better political positioning and an economic positioning to avoid the need to do those kinds of things. And, and that, I think, would be the thing that I'd really direct the, the President of the Congress on to get started on that job as fast as possible. Thanks, Doug. I think Doug has said it all, so we can close the panel. <laughs> uh, it's time to grab lunch. Uh, last night, uh, late last night, I arrived uh, from 
Prague, Czech, Czech Republic. Um, I was I spent the last five days in a, at, a, at a conference there, mostly on tax policy, but it was among uh, free market think tanks in Europe who grew, get together every year and talk about what's happening in Europe. Uh, and one of the topics is obviously uh, U.S. tax reform and what that means for Europe. And we're already seeing a response uh, in Europe and elsewhere uh, to U.S. tax reform. Uh, Latvia, uh, earlier this year, just changed, uh, dramatically uh, changed their corporate tax system to look more like Estonia. Estonia not only has a lower cor corporate tax rate, uh, uh, but it also does not tax retained earnings for corporations, only taxes earnings when they're distributed to shareholders, making it uh, uh, one of the best uh, business tax systems in all of Europe. Now Latvia has moved in that direction. Uh, I think the uh, Austria is actually considering moving toward that kind of a model. Uh, the Swedes uh, have also cut their corporate tax rate and announced a series of, of reductions and other tax re uh, reform or tax cut measures. Um, uh, Australia uh, is looking to cut its corporate tax rate, and we can go on down the list. Even France is talking about cutting its corporate tax rate. So when we ask, you know, we get a lot of questions from, from folks, well, you know, you ought to be resting on your laurels. You've just enacted tax reform for the first time in 30 years. Isn't this great? Don't you need to, you know, aren't you done? They say, no, we're not done. We're not done because the rest of the world is not done. They're not sitting still just waiting for us. They didn't sit still for the last 30 years while we held our corporate tax rate at the highest in the industrialized world. They didn't uh, sit still while we had high uh, marginal effective tax rates for individuals, while we were punishing savings and investment. They were busily transforming themselves in order to make themselves more competitive, uh, uh, more attractive for jobs and investment because they wanted to steal jobs and investment from the United States. And now, as the chairman mentioned, we have leapfrogged the rest of the world, especially in our business tax system. Uh, we've essentially, by lowering our corporate tax rate from 35% to 21%, made all U.S. companies 40% more competitive in the global economy. But we've also sent a new mark for what the rest of the world is going to have to, to achieve in order to remain competitive. And that's pretty exciting. But it also speaks to the fact that we cannot sit still because the rest of the world is not sitting still, and they won't. And so we need to make this a constant and, and permanent part of, of our culture, our political culture, as the chairman said. And there are many states that do this. Uh, Indiana, where the vice president uh, uh, was governor for so many years, did have a culture and does continue to have a culture of cutting tax rates each and every year trying to refine its system to make it more competitive. Other states, such as North Carolina and others, uh, do this on a repetitive basis. And so we have to make it part of our culture because the rest of the world is doing it as well. But let me kind of look at some specifics of, of uh, uh, where we can improve the, the current tax bill. Um, the, the morning after it passed, I was talking to a friend of mine uh, who we all know, who's been in the tax game for over 50 years. And he said, this is pretty exciting. The tax bill is historic, but not perfect. And unfortunately, because of some of the, the, the challenges, both from Senate budget rules and, and politics, uh, they had to, to make some compromises that were unfortunate, like making sure that uh, so many of the provisions were uh, temporary 
uh, rather than permanent. And when we modeled it, uh, we found that the tax plan was significantly pro-growth, but it felt short of where it could have been had so many of those provisions been made permanent. Let me just kind of walk through some of our results very quickly, and I'll turn it over to David. But what we found when we modeled the tax plan our, with our taxes and growth dynamic tax model is that the, ta is that the growth has been front-loaded, largely because of so many uh, uh, provisions are, are temporary, such as the expensing provision, one of the most pro-growth elements of the plan. Uh, that's only a five-year provision. Some of the others, including the individual provisions, sunset in about eight years. So as a result of that, we see uh, the growth, um, uh, the rate of growth accelerate in the early part of this decade. Uh, and it doesn't sound like much, but we see the rate of growth growing by 0.44%. So instead of the economy growing at 2%, just to throw out a number, it'd be grow it will grow this year at 2.44%. And we'll see that holding steady for a couple of years, but as things begin to expire, we see the growth rate falling below trend by the end of the decade. That's still enough to generate, in our model, about a trillion dollars worth of additional revenues, which then reduces the overall cost of the plan compared to what the static estimates show. Um, and when we look at the long term, which the model tries to do, once everything is settled into the economy, we see the size of the economy uh, uh, the level of the, the economy uh, increased by a one, about 1.7%. Uh, we see it uh, uh, creating about uh, 339 million new, uh, th thousand jobs and wages growing by 1.5%. And that's fairly modest, but it's enough to add over the next decade or so about $5 trillion worth of additional GDP, which is great. But because of all the temporary provisions, we could do a lot better. And when we modeled this plan, as if everything was held uh, made permanent, we see the, the growth would jump to 4.7%, so the economy would be that much bigger. Wages by 3.3%, uh, nearly twice what it is under the current plan, and creating 1.6 million new jobs. So that's the potential that we have if we just make everything permanent. And uh, uh, I think that ought to be the goal, because... Ultimately, tax reform, yes, it's about simplifying the tax system, making it fairer for everyone, easier to understand, et cetera, but it ultimately comes down to economic growth. And with that, uh, we'll uh, turn it over to Dave. Great. Thanks, Scott. Let me just make a few quick points. And uh, I guess the first one is in terms of what politically plausible but fundamental tax reform could accomplish we left about three-quarters of the growth effects on the table. Uh, if you compare what something like the original Brady-Ryan plan uh, would have accomplished in terms of economic growth compared to what was actually passed uh, last December, uh, it's about three-quarters smaller. That's the bad news. The good news is that means there's a lot of opportunity for tax reform 2.0, 3.0, to, to uh, reduce the negative economic impact of, of the tax system. Um, as Scott mentioned, virtually every pro-growth provision in the legislation is temporary except for the reduction in the C-corporation tax rate. Um, the C-corporation tax rate is 21%. Once you take into account the state and local taxes, it's approximately 25%. So we're now roughly middle of the pack among OCD, OECD countries as opposed to the highest in the world. But we're not particularly low compared to other 
industrialized countries. Um, in terms of loopholes, tax preferences, various deductions, credits, exclusions, and so on and so forth, the bill is really quite modest. So there's a great many base broadeners, as uh, <clears throat> uh, Doug mentioned, uh, available still to fund great reduction and improvement in the tax treatment of investment. Uh, the one thing I think that perhaps isn't fully understood, there's quite a few still in the business part of the tax code, but they don't involve all that much money. The big dollars are the tax preferences on the individual side, and that poses political problems. But I believe fundamentally that uh, politicians will ultimately judge by the economic impact of tax reform. And if they pass a very pro-growth tax reform, there is also people's incomes going up, people getting good or better jobs, and uh, a true sustained prosperity uh, that we once had in this country. Uh, that will ultimately be rewarded uh, as opposed to whether or not you have this or that little tweak in a, a particular tax credit uh, or employee benefit exclusion or what have you. Um, the key is reducing marginal tax rates and improving the tax treatment of savings and investment. Uh, one, one thing they did do is five years of expensing for equipment. There was no material improvement for factories and other structures, uh, and that probably needs to, to get addressed. Uh, the individual rate cuts, once you take into account the repeal of the state and local tax deduction, were extraordinarily modest. There's room to improve. Uh, the individual marginal tax rates rather dramatically. Then let me uh, talk about one other thing that perhaps I'm a little more sensitive to uh, since uh, I do have uh, uh, the law degree as opposed to my, my friends over here. Uh, and that's simplification and compliance costs. And I'm, I'm going to take out and, and, and bore you for approximately 30 seconds. Uh, as most of you probably know, uh, there is a provision in, in the legislation which would reduce uh, the tax rates that apply to pass-through businesses by 20%, which is, in effect, a 20% deduction uh, for pass-through businesses. And of course, that's in various op-eds and talking points and everybody. But let me, let me read to you what it really does, okay? And, uh, and, and this applies to roughly 8 million businesses the smallest businesses in the country. And uh, it, it just gives you a flavor for uh, how complex the system has truly become. Uh, well, the deduction is the lesser of 20% of the taxpayer's qualified business income, which you have to define, with respect to a qualified trader business, which you have to define, or the greater of A, 50% of the W-2 wages with respect to the qualified business, or B, the sum of 25% of the W-2 wages with respect to the qualified trader business, plus 2.5% of the unadjusted basis immediately after the acquisition of the qualified property. All right, and then, of course, qualified business. Well, what is that? Well, they specifically exclude a whole lot of uh, service businesses, including a bunch of listed firms, law firms, engineering firms, architecture firms, accounting firms, actuarial science, performing arts, blah, 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 blah. Right, and then... It's, we're not done yet, right? That only, those various exclusions only apply if you're below a threshold amount, which is $157,000 for a single return. Okay, now.
that's, tax attorney. Right, exactly. That's the point. You can no longer navigate the tax code without doing serious tax money. Now, what does this tell you? If you're, say, in a service business, well, suddenly you have to form two entities, one that owns the building that you're in, if you own the building, and one that you actually do the services in. The whole thing has become monstrously complex. But <clears throat> if you're in international business, it beca it's become uh, absolutely impenetrable. The subchapter N, the international tax provisions of the Internal Revenue Code, were extremely complex before the 86 Act. The 86 Act made them much more complex, and we could get into the great details of that, but you guys know that. Well, now it's become totally incomprehensible. I mean, truly, I don't think anybody knows what their impact is going to be, uh, but we now have, you, you'll read the headlines, we're in a, we have a territorial system. We don't. Right? What we have is a territorial system with a worldwide current taxation of a sort uh, on current foreign source income. But beside, the clue should be we didn't get rid of subpart F and the foreign tax credits and all that. They're still there. Well, they're there for a reason. But we also have a series of new things. Guilty, you know, global intangible low tax income, FDDDI, foreign derived intangible income. The base erosion and anti-abuse tax, which is in effect an alternative minimum tax on foreign source income. It's, and that's on top of the already monstrously complex mess that we already have. So we need to further take seriously the idea the, 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 that we need simplification, uh, particularly for, for businesses. We need to, t and because these things have costs. I believe you guys estimated that the Compliance costs of the Internal Revenue Code is $400 billion a year. It was a very nice paper, but that's almost certainly conservative because he took seriously the OMB Paperwork Reduction Act numbers. Right? So we need to, to simplify the system, and, and, and this bill, while it had some very, very positive aspects, did not do that. It's not 30 seconds, by the way. Yeah, well, no, no I just well, read it. It was well the reading of the, of the code was 30 seconds. <laughs> But, but it was awesome. It was awesome. Will there be it a was, public reading of the entire text? <laughs> <laughs> um, so there were three goals going going into the last. Pass it before we could read it. Yeah, <laughs> that they did too. So there were three goals going into the last tax reform debate. One was to lower the corporate rate. Uh, two was on the individual side to reduce the number of brackets. And three was simplification, although apparently David challenges uh, whether or not they met that goal. Um, if, if you were to give, if, the, if everybody on the panel were to give Congress additional things to aim for in tax reform 2.0 and 3.0 and 4.0 and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, what, what would those be? Getting into a couple of your points, one of the more interesting aspects of this plan is uh, it's often held up against the 1986 Reform Act, uh, which did greatly simplify the code. But actually, 86 Act shifted a lot of the tax burden away from individuals and onto businesses. And uh, I think one of the great, we'll call it historic, elements of this plan is that it has relatively the same amount of tax relief for business as it does individuals. And in some ways did simplify the code, at least for many individuals by uh, expanding or nearly doubling the standard deduction. And so instead of uh, roughly 70% of all Americans filing a relatively simple uh, one-page tax, tax form, 
Uh, now, as many as over 90% of Americans will file a simple tax return without having to go through all the itemizations. And I think that that's a great achievement. Uh, I think capping the uh, state and local tax deduction, a great achievement. We're beginning to lower the uh, threshold uh, or the allowable interest deduction from, from homes from a million to 750,000, a great achievement. All of those things are a step uh, toward greatly simplifying the, the system. Uh, there's certainly more uh, that, that could be done there. Um, if we're looking at sort of things that were left off the table, uh, certainly the taxation of savings uh, was not addressed in any way. Uh, the taxation of capital gains, for instance, was forgotten about. Uh, and we could certainly start by indexing it, I think. Um, but there are a great many things that, that are still left on the table. Uh, and again, as David mentioned, attacking some of those tax expenditures, especially on the individual side of the code, uh, could certainly, uh, we could go a lot farther there, and which would then afford us to lower rates uh, even more. All of those would be great starts. I, I think there's a very long list of tax preferences or tax expenditures that we need to repeal, both because they distort the economy and lead to a less efficient economy and reward politically powerful interests, but also because it will fund the rate reduction or improvement in capital cost recovery that will create the dynamism in the economy that, that, that we need. I should point out one other thing. that uh, uh, The chairman mentioned the expensing provision, and that was, I think, obviously the most pro-growth element of the plan. Um, but one of the things that this, this, the expensing provision uh, is limited to the fact that it only applies to what we call short-lived uh, investments. So it's machinery, uh, it's uh, new trucks, uh, tractors, uh, computer equipment, that sort of thing. It left off, um, or left in the current form, the uh, uh, deductibility of, of uh, large uh, uh, buildings and factories and things like that. And so we could dramatically improve the system by allowing the full expensing of those kinds of investments as well. Buildings and structures are really one of the biggest parts of our capital stock in the United States, and it's one of the most poorly treated under the tax code. Or at least shortening the recovery lives. I mean, the, the, we do nothing for a firm that wants to build a factory. Yeah. Uh, and, I mean, just some of you may not know, I mean, sometimes it takes as long as 40 years to recover the cost of, of building a structure. Um, and the rest of them are generally in the 27-year range. So that that increases the cost of building them considerably because you can't deduct the cost of building them until uh, for, for decades later. Um, and in terms of improving uh, the employment prospects of the American people, the productivity of the American people, uh, building new factories that incorporate leading-edge technology is a central part of, of the problem, and yet the tax code basically says, don't do it. So I, I, I think the, the, the basic um, lesson is, uh, number one, know where you're aiming. Right? We, didn't get, we didn't get all the way there this time, but you have to agree on, on the endpoint. What are you aiming for? And for me, at least, that's a tax system that is based on uh, income in the United States defined in a very rigorous way and easily enforced. I'm sympathetic to David's uh, concerns. It's one that's very pro-growth. And so getting the, the expensing provisions ironed out. I mean, one of the things to think about when, when in the expensing is it is like 
the easiest way to get the tax code out of the economy. Because if you immediately write off the cost of any investment, whether it's a factory or a computer or uh, a, a lab technician who's involved in your R&D program, you're getting $1 of depreciation allowances for every dollar that you spend. And that's true whether it's short-lived equipment, long-lived equipment, uh, plants, um, buildings, tangible, intangible capital. It equalizes the tax treatment of all the investments, and it lets capital markets allocate that stuff. And that's, that, that would be a fantastic place for us to go. The matching provision with that is to continue marching down and limit interest deductibility so that you get the tax code completely out of financing decisions. Uh, that, would be, that would raise the productivity. So I think those are things we got to do right away. And then on the individual side, we have a lot of work to do in terms of getting the tax preferences out of there and um, having it be a pro-saving investment uh, individual code. Those, those are the things to focus on. Just one thing. On the interest, uh, obviously I agree with you. We should do that. But there, there needs to be a symmetry if you're going to allow eliminate the deductibility of interest. You also need to not tax interest. And I think and a lot of people don't get that. Right. That's exactly right. Scott, you mentioned that that uh, with the new tax reform, we'll have 90% of folks filing a pretty easy return. Uh, do you think that that uh, takes away from some of the political pressures in the future to, to to do tax reform, especially if tax reform isn't focused on reducing rates for that for that population? Certainly, I think that uh, it, it minimizes the. Um, the pressure from interest groups such as the, the realtors and the charities and all of that, uh, because the, the, those people aren't even thinking about that now. They don't have to. And it's almost, uh, they, it's kind of self-help tax reform in the sense that they don't have to worry about keeping track of their, their itemized deductions. And so it really has taken some of the political power away from some of the bigger interest groups in the United States. And I think it's proving... Uh, and it will prove that um, their industries aren't as dependent on the tax code as they think. They, we heard some doom and gloom uh, predictions from the realtors and others, especially the charities. And hey, I'm a charity. Uh, the Tax Foundation is. And we haven't seen an impact really on our, our giving yet either. So I think housing will be just fine. I think the real estate market will be fine. And I think that uh, a lot of the doom and gloom that has been predicted will simply not come to pass. My real estate agent sent me a pretty critical email last year. Where we will see some of the political pressure is, is from uh, state and local governments, and that's yep. where we're, we are seeing um, the sort of um, the, the rages against progressive taxation coming from, of all people, um, uh, you know, Governor Cuomo and Governor Brown in, in California and the, and the governor in in, uh, in uh, New Jersey, who are all trying to find workarounds to the fact that we actually uh, increase the taxes on high-income people, and now they're trying to find goofy workarounds to give those tax credits back to the rich people in their state. So, you know, at the one hand, they're 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 railing against the fact that this bill was somehow a tax cut for millionaires and billionaires, but now we're going to put back all the tax cuts uh, or tax preferences for those millionaires and billionaires. So it's interesting to watch this sort of political dichotomy. Uh, let's open it up to the field. Does anyone have any questions? Yeah. We have microphones in the back um, coming your way. 
coming. Don't worry. Barbara Bowie Whitman. I just wondered what prospects any of you see for a significant change in the way we treat capital gains. It always takes political fire from people who say that's a tax cut for the rich. But it clearly reallocates cap would if we in the absence of a capital gains tax we would have a much more efficient allocation of capital and I think of, of resources and I think of property that I own that I'd love to sell but I don't because I don't want to pay capital gains and the issue is do I just have to keep it until I die so that my heirs can receive it on a stepped up basis or will they take that away from us what do you think is workable solutions toward capital gains I think it's, it's politically revealing that they didn't take it on at all this time around. I do. Um, you know, we know the, the, the power of the, the sort of distributional fight uh, coming from the left every time. And so they picked their battles. They did a little bit with the top rate, didn't touch capital gains. You know, maybe next time around they leave the rate there and go after the, the tax treatment of capital income. I think that'd be great if we could get to a system that sort of only had one layer of tax on uh, excess returns and had zero on the normal return to capital. That's, that's the place you want to go. I mean, the one thing that uh, I've heard people talk about more than I've heard since the 80s probably is indexing capital basis for inflation. And given the current relatively low inflation rates, it will probably get a decent score if they tried to do it uh, Congratulations, but there's also a chance that the, the Trump Treasury would do it administratively. Um, and uh, so that that's a realistic possibility. There was not, as, as Doug mentioned, much of a push for a substantial reduction in capital gains rate this time around. I just didn't see uh, much, much effort to, to do that. On the other hand, they didn't raise... Uh, the tax on uh, capital gains or dividends either, uh, like they, they did in the 86 Act. So I have like two questions. The first question is, according to the pools conducted by several news organizations like the Wall Street Journal and NBC, they said the tax reform is not very popular among the nation. And do you think it is a little bit to push to launch a like phase two of reform tax reform when the, those polls are suggesting that the current tax reform is not very popular. And the second question is, uh, some people say that the tax reform will increase the tax deficit by by increasing the foreign direct investment because there's a tax cut on the earnings uh, of the routing operations abroad. So what are your opinions and comments on that? Thank you. On the, on the popularity issue, uh, and then I'll kick off the details to the gentleman on my left. Uh, you know, wh whenever Congress does anything, the losers of whatever they're doing become most vocal at the beginning of the process. And I think that that's partially what is being reflected in some of the, in some of the polling. Once you start to see folks um, winning on tax reform, and we're already seeing folks across the country winning on tax reform, they will become more vocal. And 
uh, and and ultimately will push back against any revisions in the in the negative direction on the tax reform uh, the tax reform that just passed. Um, if you look at broad polls versus specific poll, polls, the broad polling seems to suggest that economic issues right now are on, on the forefront of everybody's mind. And, uh, and what you've heard today from everybody up on this panel and what you heard from Chairman Brady is just that the tax reform that passed last year was uh, broadly pro-growth and we're going to see lots of positive impacts of it coming um, down the road. And, and ultimately, um, that will be, again, very, very, very popular as, as it continues to roll out. Um, but that's just, you know, uh, uh, that's essentially a, a fiction of, of, of timing. I mean, you see the same thing show up in polls of literally every change in public policy. Um, the, the Affordable Care Act, for instance, um, at the beginning was very unpopular with basically everybody. And then over time, it became more popular with who? The folks who won because of the Affordable Care Act, which, again, shows up in sort of the baseline polling. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I think, um, number one, remember that, especially now, this is the Trump tax bill, and it will be as popular as the president. In the same way that the Affordable Care Act was known as Obamacare, and it polled exactly as the president did. There, there are going to be people on the left who are going to be against the tax bill because it's his, and that has nothing to do with the tax bill. So you know, that's going to drive a lot of the, the top-line polling. Underneath that, um, there's an enormous amount of misinformation, and... Uh, my sister organization is doing a lot of uh, advertising on, uh, in congressional districts to explain how it actually works, the benefits to directly to people, and it moves people's understanding and it moves the polling numbers in those areas. Uh, that's, that's well documented. And ultimately, the most important lesson is people don't vote on pieces of legislation. They vote on how well the economy is performing, what are their prospects. And if it is successful in that way, it, it's not going to matter what the polling numbers are on the bill itself. I've only been uh, operating under the new tax law for three and a half months. Uh, it takes at least three and a half months for the growth effects to kick in. <laughs> uh, there you go again, being an, an economist. I mean, <laughs> uh, there are, it is starting to have positive effects. You can see decisions that are being made that are positive. Uh, the withholding tables changed, what, six weeks ago? And so not very long ago. Uh, but Nobody's going to file a tax return on the new code uh, for nearly a year. So, no, and I suspect then people will start to make uh, more uh, permanent verdicts about the bill. But Doug's point that the growth effects will ultimately trump everything, I think, is the key. And this is pro-growth, particularly in the first year or two, and, and will have a, a positive effect. Uh, you also mentioned something about foreign direct investment. Uh, there's, and I, and I think you were uh, talking about how the territorial system might cause American firms to invest abroad. And yes, there's some of that, although it's not as territorial as made out. But also, the reduction in the rate and the improvement in capital cost recovery for the first five years will increase investment in the United States. Uh, it also make investment in the United States more attractive for foreign multinationals. So it's more, in, in my judgment, likely that the uh, sharp reduction in the federal corporate tax rate and the improvement in capital cost recovery will swamp the effects 
of the foreign tax provisions, and you'll actually see a significant capital inflow or a reduction in capital outflow by U.S. multinationals. But time will tell. And I think that's the reason why there's a great deal of concern right now in places like Berlin and Paris and, and um, uh, perhaps even Tokyo, because now th those countries have the highest corporate tax rates in the industrialized world. They've now become exposed now that the U.S. is no longer the highest. So they're, the companies in those countries are now looking at the United States as, as an investment opportunity, is much more attractive than their home state or home country. And I would think that uh, there's a great deal of, of concern, but also motivation in those high-tax nations to, to reform their tax system so that they can be more competitive and not lose jobs and investment uh, to the U.S. Completely into the weeds nerdy on this these incentives, just for a second, because the left says this a lot, and I, and I think it's, it's analytically incorrect. The, the claim is we now have a territorial system and tax rates outside the U.S. in some cases are lower and, but, and because we will not reach out and try to tax that income, firms are going to locate their production abroad and that, and that the incentive is to offshore things because we have a territorial system. And I think that's wrong. We went from a system before where they could do that. They could put that, that factory abroad, never repatriate the money, pay only the local tax. Nothing has changed in, in that regard. Everything else changes in favor of investment in the U.S. Lower rate, capital cost recovery, patent box for intangibles. So they're making a mistake about looking at the level instead of looking at what the changes did for investment incentives, and they are unambiguously better for the U.S. Adam Michelle here at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, one of the things that I see as the biggest threat to the next phase of tax reform is the sort of out-of-control spending here in Washington. And Doug, you mentioned how it impacted the 86 reform. I wonder if you could all just elaborate on how Congress's proclivity to spend more and more could impact the, all the things that we'd like to see happen next. Congress's proclivity to uh, spend more, uh, create and not control mandatory spending programs um, has, raises the, the certainty of a sovereign debt crisis at some point. The only question is when, and when the whole thing blows up, it's going to be hard to get tax reform done. Yeah, I think that's right. <laughs> Just me. I, Uh, there seems to be some agreement that we should get rid of some of these uh, distortionary uh, tax expenditures like uh, exclusion, excluding employee health coverage. I know it was delayed till 2022, but the Cadillac tax, by uh, indexing the maximum limit, lower inflation, which is lower than health care costs eventually, more and more people's employer-based health coverage is going to get taxed. Do you see that kind of phase in slowly over time, getting rid of them as a viable strategy to getting over the political unpopularity of getting rid of some of these distortionary tax expenditures? So the Cadillac tax is my fault um, because on the McCain campaign, we proposed eliminating the exclusion. Scott's fault. Almost everything is Scott's fault. <laughs> There's a paper trail here I can't avoid. <laughs> we, pro we proposed getting rid of the exclusion. Um, it became a complete political firestorm. Uh, it was wildly unpopular. Um, and when they did the ACA, 
their first policy instinct was to, in fact, cap the exclusion, but that would have been doing what McCain said, which they had ripped to shreds politically. So they invented this backdoor way to cap the exclusion called the Cadillac tax. So the eliminating the tax preference and the, and the Cadillac tax had basically the same um, uh, motivation, in my policy motivation, in my view. The Cadillac tax was originally proposed to start, and then it got revised in the in the in the bill and got pushed back by the labor unions, and then in subsequent legislation has been pushed back even further. I think that's very revealing. Like it's it's never happened. It's always just been promised to happen eventually. So this is a, a, a probably the right way to do it. Phase it in, whether it's exclusion or something else, but it tells you how hard this is politically because it's never really been done. And, and the other piece of evidence on that front is um, every repeal and replace plan put out by uh, Republicans contained capping the exclusion. And when the House introduced the American Health Care Act, it was nowhere to be found. So when it turned into live legislation, they didn't do it. So I, I, I'm, I, I think that's an absolutely important policy imperative. We need to do it. It's on a list of uh, tax expenditures that are quite costly and distortionary, but the politics of it are quite difficult. I, I lived all of that last year in the White House, the whole ACA thing. Um, so it may have been, so I, I, I lived with his issues. That's shorthand for PTSD. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I could say that, I mean, we had, so Andrew, Andrew Bremberg, who's the director of Domestic Policy Council, he uh, authored uh, Scott Walker's health care plan. And Scott Walker's health care plan, he also caps the exclusion. And so basically Bremberg wanted two things out of the ACA fight last year. One was a cap on the exclusion, and two was uh, was some sort of tax credit approach. Um, and we, so we went to Congress, uh, the administration went to Congress with, with essentially those two things in hand, and we were told there's no way that we were going to get a cap on the exclusion in any way. Um, it's just that the special interest groups are, are way too powerful in that regard, and probably rightly so in some in some cases. I think that whenever you think about phasing in um, any policy, you have to think about how painful it is. And if it's if it would be painful today, it would probably be painful tomorrow. And the longer you keep pushing it off, the less likely it's ever going to happen, whether it's the Cadillac tax or in the ACA, there were also the, the uh, dish cuts to hospitals that keep getting delayed and delayed and delayed and will probably never go into effect. Um, so you have to think about that, right? You have to think about how hard it is to do right now versus versus at, at some point in the future. And ultimately, that's what we saw on the spending side of the ledger, too, with the Budget Control Act. I mean, at first, the BCA um, was uh, not too hard to live with. At some point, it became too hard to live with. And what we saw happen earlier this year, at least on the spending side of the ledger, is that Congress abandoned uh, caps on discretionary spending by eating away not just the fallback sequester, but but the but the initial cap that was put in place, and in two years they'll co- probably come back and just repeal the BCA altogether um, until they have time to forget about what they had done before in ten years, and then come back and put discretionary caps back in place. Then we'll go through the whole the whole rigmarole again. Same thing happened on the SGR and the, Medi- the Medicare Sustainable Growth Rate from uh, from 1997, which. Congress lived with for a long time and led to a lot of you know important policy changes, but eventually it just became too hard to live with. So you have to think about what is sustainable in both the short term and in the long term, and phasing in policy rarely actually works. Uh, we have a question in the back. 
excuse my voice. Thank you, Mark Nazako, Associates for Print Technologies. Um, first, I want to thank all of you um, on the panel for your intellectual leadership that led to uh, this round of tax reform, and also the, the gentleman, uh, Mr. Steve Entenance, in the second row uh, for his uh, role in that, which was huge. Um, so two questions. Um, how do you see the politics of tax reform 2.0 differing from what we've just been through, and is it going to be a effort towards another omnibus bill, or is it going to be a series of smaller um, targeted packages? Attempt to try to do something between now and November, then um, that that's be a positive sign. But if you get into next year, I mean, the politics could get very different. Interesting thing that I took out of the chairman's remarks was he's trying to change the culture of tax reform, right? Where we don't do fundamental tax reform every 30 years and follow up in between with these tax extender bills, but rather we start to think about how you know, to uh, you know, move the process along as the rest of the world is you know evolving, evolving too, which it sounds like is happening. Um, and so, if we can learn from that and keep the momentum going, then you know, I, I think the, the the likelihood is is great. Obviously, it's going to depend on November. Uh, and what we're seeing right now is is that Democrats, by and large, have. Uh, picked a pick, picked whatever their strategy is going to be leading up to the the midterms, which is reject anything that the president is for. I mean, the president could come out for you know apple pie, and they would they would come up with reasons why apple pie is not the thing that you should be eating right now. Uh, a cherry pie, exactly. Why it should be cherry pie. Um, so, uh, but but that but, it, but this is bigger than that. This is this is about sort of changing the 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 annual culture of of um, how Congress thinks about tax policy and moving away from these, you know, annual extenders bills to something something bigger than that. I think that's really important. I mean, what, so I always think about this. Again, go back to start with the 86 reform, which began in the mid-'70s with Dick Gephardt and Bill Bradley on the left, and then Alvin Roth, Jack Kemp, uh, uh, Art Laffer, others on the right, in a bipartisan way, telling the American public the tax code is your problem, we need to fix this, uh, a president who runs for re-election, very popular, you know, all of those political tailwinds, and it was really hard to get done. Um, clear mandate to do it, hard to get done. Uh, Bush tax cuts, wrote them down in 1999, said this is what I'm running on, they are going to be exactly this. People knew the deal, he won, he had a mandate, still took a little while, we got him through. This was completely at odds with that. There was no political tailwinds to this. Uh, the Democrats don't believe in tax reform anymore. They, they believe in, oh, maybe we can broaden the base for rich people and raise the rates. That's their version of tax reform. They weren't interested in, uh, in anything on the small business front. They understood the corporate uh, to some extent. Um, so it had a completely different character. No tailwinds, no bipartisanship, and they got it done in amazingly short amount of time. It, it, it defied history. So I don't know what the politics of tax reform are anymore. But I think it's very smart of the chairman to say, let's dictate what we want them to be, and let's have them be annual increments that are manageable and not easily uh, demagogued. And, and that is exactly the right thing to do. I still would like to see um, a bit more of a vision from leadership on what the tax code ought to look like 
10 to 15 years from now. And um, it, it changed over the last couple of years. Well, one, you had all the Republican candidates had a big tax cut plan. And some of them were more dramatic than others. In fact, uh, two of the candidates, uh, Rand Paul and, and um, uh, Ted Cruz, had a value-added tax component to theirs, replacing the corporate income tax. Uh, others had more uh, different types of dramatic reforms. And then you had the, the Ryan Brady blueprint, which did set out a really transformational restructuring of the tax system. But then once we got into the actual legislation, we kind of lost sight of what, what the we wanted the, the tax code to look like. And so I think we also need to focus on that. You know, do we want to move toward a consumption base? Yes. What I, but what does that look like and how do we get there? Uh, those are all still big questions rather than this sort of piecemeal approach that we're taking now within, without any sort of a, a vision that you're selling to taxpayers. Because that's the thing that we're maybe losing sight of is that we're not, we, if we're not getting the public support for this, it's maybe because they've lost sight of what the goal is, other than just to cut your taxes. Uh, we need a, a bigger vision for what this tax system ought to look like at the end of the day, and we need to find a way of articulating that in a way that really has um, uh, a broad-based support. For the record, I was supportive of naming the bill the Cut, Cut, Cut Act. Uh, I'm upset they didn't go with well, it. The base, the base <laughs> matters, too, and you can't forget that. You know. Yeah. Another thing that's not Scott's fault. <laughs> <laughs> I think we have time for one more question. Steve? <laughs> Steve Enton. Uh, Steve Enton, Tax Foundation. Uh, in getting these points across to the public, uh, if they don't understand it, they're not going to like it. Uh, there was a question earlier on capital gains. It's a form of double taxation. Many people don't know that. Uh, the corporate tax is a form of double taxation. Many people don't know that. In scoring things, the things look expensive initially, but they may not be so expensive down the road after you factor in the growth, but we don't show that in the revenue estimates, and the Senate gets all tangled up in the static stuff. And I'm wondering, uh, the unlocking effect on capital gains are enormous, and they eventually came around to putting some of that into their scores. How do we get a, the point across to people that without the factories and the machines to work in, the wages aren't as high, that labor and capital work together and that they share in this. What educational efforts can we make and how can we make sure that we don't simply rely on static misleading estimates in the congressional budget process? Don't we need some sort of reform of, of that? Uh, so on the latter, which is the easier question, um, I, I, I'm, you know, I started in 2003 with the dynamic analysis, the residence budget. It's been done every year since. So the, the long game has always been get Congress using dynamic analyses, and they are. And now important legislation has been dynamically scored several times, uh, tax bills, immigration reforms, you know, things that, that matter enormously. And that raises the, the attention of the policy research community because they say, oh, they didn't get it right. And that, that's going to feed the interest in this and the ability to do it well. And so I, I'm, I'm just letting that, that what I view as a very virtuous cycle play out. 
This is this is now in the system. It's part of the House rules. It will be part of the Senate rules. Probably could have been this time, to be honest. Uh, but we need we need more information into those so that they're done better every time. And, and, that, and that's a good thing. Teaching the public high-quality economic analysis is incredibly hard. And the teachable moments are elections, particularly presidentials. And so th that's the thing to look for. Can you find leading candidates for president or uh, important Senate and House races to stand up and articulate the way the world works and how we can best form policies to make it work better. There's no substitute for that, I don't think. I'll say a couple of quick things. First off, um, dynamic scoring was done by the Joint Committee, but after the game had already been played. Oh, All right? And as far as I'm concerned, uh, we need to have uh, people at the Joint Committee that want to actually comply with congressional rules do dynamic scoring as part of the process, as opposed to literally after the bill had already been passed the House and the Senate. Uh, the left has, over the years, been become very good at setting up institutional constraints on uh, congressional action, and uh, part of that is, for example, the tax expenditure uh, list, but uh, they do it in the budget area as well. We need to start thinking about process. And part of Tax Reform 2.0 is to be fixing certain aspects of the tax policy making process that bias the entire process uh, in, in favor of a, a progressive point of view. Um, and the, the administration needs to go back to what it was, was done in, in the Bush years in terms of how they put together their special analysis on tax expenditures to reflect at least both the uh, Fisher Touré definition of income and the uh, Hey, Simon's definition, or really, it's not even that. It's more the Stanley Surrey idiosyncratic, crazy definition of income. Um, uh, but because people, including members of Congress and their staff, look at those lists as sort of a normative list of what's a loophole and what's not and how to raise money, and they're wrong. Uh, in terms of communicating with the public, as, as Doug said, it's difficult but it's, it's a, a core function of organizations like those represented here on, on the dais to educate um, the public, policymakers, uh, and, and uh, then others who are like journalists and um, columnists and things about what is and is not good tax policy. I think among sophisticated um, tax people on the conservative and libertarian side, there's a genuine consensus about what is and is not good tax policy. But I don't think that's necessarily true in the broader conservative movement. And, and we need to do uh, a better job of, of educating the broader conservative movement about what is and is not uh, sound tax policy that will result in the best outcomes for the American people. Well, I'll just finish on a very happy note, if I could. And that is that there is a chart, there's a, a, a table in uh, the CBO report that compares all the various dynamic analysis of the tax bill, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. All of them are positive. All of them show a, that, that the tax bill was a, a pro-growth tax plan that will have positive effects on the economy. And the whole issue of dynamic scoring is over and done with. It's, it is part of the process, as Doug said. And uh, I think the fact that every one of those five or six or seven uh, different uh, scoring that they show there and illustrate on that table, uh, the fact that they're all positive tells you that 
it's all just a matter of degree now. It's just, it's not a matter of, 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 of are we going to do it? Except the, the real world political process was all done with static numbers because the joint committee totally blew off the House rules. But we won the debate over Oh No, intellectually we won. But in practice, the Joint Committee has utterly ignored the House rules and the requirements to do Danny Osborne. Steve, what we really need is uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda to write a hit musical uh, called it's... Capital and Labor that's not about Karl Marx. Uh, that's, that's, that's how we get the message out there. Uh, uh, please join me in thanking the panel. And thank you for the great questions. Hold on. I don't think we should give her a turkey's pass. I'm sorry. I'm not going to give her a pass.